I'm Matt Roden. This is the Creative Careers Podcast. Today I'm here talking with renowned illustrator, vocal cartoonist, caricaturist, Steve Brodner. Hey, Steve. Thanks so much for joining me. How do you, uh, how do you prefer to be referred to as? Are you a, an illustrator? You know, I started out as a, a political cartoonist. That's what I wanted to do in the beginning. And then I kept shifting and changing around as opportunities came and went. So at my core, at my soul, I really do think I am somebody who is most happy fulfilling the mission of having the art respond to what's happening in the world. I think most art is about that. Artists are responding to what's happening in the world with respect to color and texture or um, personal stories. My work is responding to not just stories, but political points of view that are involved in policy and politics. I guess I'm kind of unusual in this world. I take a special interest in things that most people would find exceedingly ugly. I find politicians strangely interesting and attractive. I think caricaturists as a rule find the grotesque especially interesting. Yeah, I think you have to. Well, I think in politics, you're on one end or the other. You're diving deep and holding people accountable, which is not attractive. No, it isn't. But for some reason, when I was a little boy, I was very gripped and fascinated by how things that were as mundane and deadly as current affairs could be turned into something fascinating and illuminating in the hands of a caricaturist or a cartoonist, because I go way back, born in the mid-50s. So I come to consciousness around the time that JFK is elected president. And then, of course, people from my generation got shocked into extraordinary attention on the day when he was killed. I think most kids my age were watching cartoons, and I was really moved by that. And then, you know, the years passed, Vietnam War happened, and civil rights movement is exploding. There's uh, the space race, and there are race riots in the streets, and there are fistfights in Brooklyn in corner bars where uh, people are in extreme disagreement over the war. The war was a huge flashpoint. I don't know how much of this folks of your generation understand in terms of the intensity of feeling, but it was there. And so when I went to summer camp a few years later, when I was about, I don't know, 14 years old, I was listening to the Democratic Convention on the on a portable radio under my pillow at night. <laughs> so I was getting Newsweek delivered to my bunk, but this was me. And, and then I went to high school after that. And somewhere around that time when I was in high school, I decided I was going to draw a cartoon a day for myself every day. I didn't show it to anybody. And I would just draw first in pencil and then in ink, uh, the war, uh, Johnson, Nixon. There were a lot of baseball cartoons. And then after about a year of this, I tucked them under my arm and I went to the local Brooklyn newspaper because we had local papers. And I said to the editor, I'd like to work with you. And he says, yeah, that's good. I'll give you $10. <laughs> so every week I'd come in with a new local cartoon about Brooklyn and he'd fish around in his pocket for a $10 bill. And he got me started. 
and they were terrible, but nobody told me they were terrible. I thought they were, I was doing well, you know? That's a very important thing for a young person, to never tell them exactly how bad they are. You never know what's going to flower. No, it's always the students that you don't always anticipate being the successful ones that sometimes surprise you. You don't want to be the person that ever told them that that was wrong, what they were doing. You always want to find the ways to just help them move forward. Yeah, and te teaching is absolutely fascinating. I don't know why some of us have this gene to be making pictures and then just showing them to the world and insisting the world, you know, sees it and uh, then uh, hire us for jobs. Uh, for me, I know that at a young age, it was something that I responded to when other people did it. And that's what made me want to do it. I think people have that with different art forms, but there's something about the internal quality of drawing, not just illustration, but art in general. It's like, I was a quiet child, but I had that sort of, that's something that like I had to connect with. And then when I saw art that moved me, it shook me, you know, I think that's the experience that forms artists at a young age. Yes. Lovers of it. That's absolutely, there's a passion. And so the further you get into it, the more you realize how demanding it really is. And then you're, then you're really kind of fucked because you have to, stay up all night long to get that little piece of it right, you know, to, to civilians, people who aren't artists. It's very hard to relate to this. So, but eventually you stop having friends, quite so many who are not artists. They understand you or they're out. I think that's the life of an artist for sure. Well, let's skip ahead here a little bit. You went to Cooper Union and uh, you studied there and you had to sort of push back against their traditional atmosphere? First of all, Cooper Union was and still is a fine art school. They want to not lower their standards in their view by catering to what was then called commercial art. And uh, parenthetically, a school that looks down on and denigrates illustration is a school that produced Milton Glaser, Seymour Quast, Ed Sorrell, <laughs> and a whole bunch of other wonderful people who were kick-ass illustrators. In spite of all that, Cooper Union never learned its lesson. And by the time I got there, which is like 25 years later, they want to throw me out because I'm drawing pictures in life class that are funny of the model. And all right, I shouldn't do it. It was not cool. It's a very serious school. All right. You know, teacher could not believe her eyes and ran to the dean and said, this young man does not belong in this school. So he called me in and told me about what a wonderful program they had at, at Brooklyn College and that I should think very seriously about quitting Cooper and go to Brooklyn College. But of course, Cooper Union was the place for me because it was free. And it was very hard to get into, but somehow they let me in and I wasn't going to leave. You know, I came from working class Brooklyn. My mom was a single parent and we were in a very difficult situation, kind of hand to mouth. So I smiled at the dean and thanked him for his suggestion, but declined to quit. And then the next semester, I did a little bit better in my grade, so he couldn't reach me. The following year, I entered a national cartooning contest, all on the subject of 
the population explosion. I won first prize, and the second prize was a man named Eldon Dedini, who was a wonderful full-page color cartoonist for Playboy and other places. And the third place was, I think, Gary Trudeau of Doonesbury. And the fourth place, I believe, was Charles Adams, one of the greatest cartoonists who ever lived. And for those who don't know, that's where the Adams family comes from, Charles Adams. And then from then on, everything was all right. I was able to get independent study where I drew political cartoons for a local paper called the Soho Weekly News. I was able to do that for six credits. I went on and immediately after college, I got a job on a paper in New Jersey called the Hudson Dispatch. They couldn't tolerate what I was doing because I was making fun of local politicians. And they that's the last thing in the world they wanted. I don't know why they hired me, but I was there for maybe six months in Union City, New Jersey, and I decided I was going to just get the hell out. I didn't know how freelance worked at all, but I just decided I would do cartoons for myself at night and send them to places that might want to use them. And one of them was Steve Heller at the New York Times Book Review. And so I started working for Heller, and I did like one one every two weeks for the book review. I read around this time, you started to publish your own newspaper, you were self-publishing. You've always had a very entrepreneurial spirit, and you seem like somebody that acts a bit more like an author sometimes, somebody who very much has generated your own opinions and your own content, you couple writing and images together. I, I would say the vast majority of my illustration assignments that I got in the beginning have been just like you or anybody else, phone rings. Hey, Steve, I've got an assignment that's up your alley. Would you take it? There was a lot of call, particularly during presidential years, uh, every four years especially, for satire, caricature, parody, portraiture with a kind of a twist. I started getting work. It was just the time was right. And I wound up with clients who wanted me really badly. And so I had like three or four steady clients all of a sudden at the same time. Mother Jones, Washington Post Magazine, and then boom, Esquire happened for me. And that's 88 when I just kind of like burst on the scene as this kind of house artist for a major national magazine. They sent me with writers. So I got to meet the writers and coordinated as much as possible. And, and it was great. And I moved on to Spy Magazine for a couple of years. And then from there, I went to The New Yorker, where I was regular for about 19 years. And I did over 200 assignments for The New Yorker. And, and now I'm everywhere. I, as I went along, it was much more about my not waiting for the job, but dreaming it up and contacting people and saying, let's do this, let's do that. Editorial may be withering away, and certain as, aspects of illustration may be withering away. But what doesn't wither away is people's interest in your stories. So, right. So if you can tell your story, you can tell anybody's story. You know, I opened the New York Times yesterday and there were two full pages that were just given over to artists to tell stories about the pandemic, what it's like to be running a business in a pandemic and so on. This is great. And I think this is where it's going. And so if you're an illustrator, you're listening to this, this to me is what's exploding and going to be there for us, especially in books. Graphic novels, graphic memoirs, comics, movies, animations.
Yeah, I don't think we're in a world where anyone's losing interest in, in other people's interpretation or takes or it's the, the avenues are certainly changing. Even now during the pandemic, we're realizing that in a world where it's hard to get out and take photographs to film things, illustrators are becoming more and more essential for their ability to interpret these points of view. It means that you have to be an entrepreneur. You have to be ready to scheme for the next thing. And then also really important to be ready to be rejected. You got to eat rejection for breakfast. Don't feel as though if you're re rejected by anyone, anywhere, at any time, that that means anything about you. One of the greatest skills you can have is to get knocked down, but not get knocked out. And to be able to say, okay, this means maybe I have to alter my approach this way. In light of the work and the campaigns, how many hours a day do you spend totally immersing yourself and familiarizing yourself with the topics that you venture to have an opinion on? From the minute I get up, I'm taking a shower with the radio on or the TV audio on my phone, or Democracy Now!, which I recommend everybody. Then I rifle through the New York Times, and then I'm doing a blog every day for my social media accounts that everybody can subscribe to. If you find me on Twitter, Steve Brodner can see what I'm up to, or Instagram, S. Brodner. And I'm doing the face of a, a person we've lost, either to the coronavirus or to police violence or to go some other place where there, there's silence and um, to, to shine a light on an area of the news that is not making the headline right now. So I'm totally engaged with the world in which we have a pandemic, widespread depression, and a massive civil rights movement all happening at exactly the same time. Why would you do anything else? Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, absolutely. One thing I sense is that it may be difficult today to be something like a caricaturist who makes fun of people. I think s sarcasm itself and the act of being cynical is, in certain regards, can be frowned upon. There's a lot of conversations about people feeling like the term kicking downwards and offending people publicly is a risk that you run. But, but Matt, Matt, satire is not punching down. Satire is going after powerful people. And if ever you see a satirist making fun of someone who's sick, disabled, poor, homeless, you have to kick that guy in the nuts. You have to go after that. That is not satire. That is abusive, entertainment, shock value behavior. So don't ever confuse that with satire. Satire is always punching up. Make the comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That is the motto. I know that people really shy away these days from having a political point of view for being told it might be the wrong one or maybe feeling like they're not educated enough on the thing that they're talking about. And there's a certain ownership behind certain points of view. I hear that. And, and the, the only solution to not feeling as though you're educated is to get educated. I think a lot of people have a hard time knowing the difference between journalism and propaganda. If you grow up in a red state, some people will repeat what Trump said, which is the lying New York Times. Well, the New York Times makes mistakes, but it's real journalism. Fox doesn't make mistakes because it never intends to be journalism. 
Rush Limbaugh never makes mistakes because it's pure propaganda, as is Mark Levin and Ann Coulter. Now, it's a terrible tragedy that people don't understand what journalism is. We have big journalism schools in Syracuse and in, in uh, Columbia, big places where people pay a lot of money to professors to teach young people how to be journalists. And they don't teach them how to be like Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> They teach them the rules of journalism, which are you multi-source your story. You don't go with any story that's just from one person. You must have two or three sources before you can go ahead. Once you publish a story, you must fact check. And not by you, it's by somebody else in the office who tracks down all the facts and makes all the calls. I know for a fact, anytime I did a story for The New Yorker, every little comma was tracked down by their famous fact checkers. These fact checkers are in every one of these publications from the Boston Globe to Mother Jones to the New Yorker to New York Times. The third thing that makes it journalism is that when they make a mistake and human beings make mistakes, they get corrected. We need to educate people about where to get their news from. So let's talk about this for a second. Can a right-wing media organization like the Wall Street Journal and somebody else like John Oliver look at the same set of facts and interpret them differently? Absolutely. But they have to give you the facts so that you can check them out on your own. A good conservative is going to read the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And a good liberal is going to read the New York Times and, yes, Wall Street Journal and The, and the Economist. The Economist is a conservative publication, but God damn it, it's journalism. I'm glad you say that, because if we are talking about somebody who has a satirical point of view, like John Oliver, like yourself, there's nobody that can come along and, and tell them that their research is wrong. They are fully accountable for the point of view. And what you're saying is the amount of effort that goes into actually having an opinion to be backed up with the sort of research and energy it takes to form that opinion is crucial. It's not a casual thing. It's not something, oh, I think I'll have an opinion. I think I'll be a, a liberal because I like Taylor Swift and she's liberal. I'm liberal. No. Read a couple of books. Come on. <laughs> Read some history. Find out everything's about history, you know. So it really does come down to education. And as being an artist that participates in the world, if you don't do those things, you're making yourself incredibly vulnerable to other people being able to pull apart your arguments. There should be nothing that you put out there in the world that if somebody attacks you for, that you can't have a good defense as to where that point of view comes from and how you arrived at the point of view that you're presenting. Well, the most important thing is to be able to call out the bullshit. You want to say that Hillary Clinton should not be elected because she's running a prostitution ring out of the basement of a pizza parlor in Maryland that doesn't have a basement. This story had such salience with someone that he showed up with guns at this pizza parlor to try to liberate these children. And that's because this poor devil was, was being subjected to non-journalism. And the internet and cable are all here to whip people up because that's how you get likes. That's how you get clicks. But if you're educated and you read news from real journalism, you have nothing to worry about. 
And also, it's not your job to change anybody's mind. In fact, after a lifetime of trying to change people's minds with pictures, I'm here to say, Matt, that I don't think it is possible for any one person to change another person's mind. Your job is to invade the silence, to occupy the silence with reality, and then and then get out because there's no hope. You're not going to change their minds. There's a lot of background that you're going to have to fill them in on to bring them up to the point of view that you have. So, and it's not your job. It's not your job. It's their job. It's actually their job to do the reading, to get some books. It take you some time, as if it were important. You know. How about your process a little bit? You have these long relationships with public figures. Uh, you had one with Reagan. You had one with Bush. You definitely have one with Donald Trump now. Crafting a caricature beyond just making a goofy face, making them look silly, right? You're merging a political identity with a real person and using their face as, as a way of narrating. How do you go about crafting something that has a point to it in that portrait? The most important thing about caricature for me is that it is not about making exaggerated faces. It is about telling a story. So that makes it no different from any other illustration assignment. How can I take the features of this face and tell my story with it? Sometimes it's very easy. Like Donald Trump is extremely easy. But there are people who are very difficult, like Ronald Reagan was difficult. Nixon was super easy. His face looked like an amusement park. Bill Clinton, also very easy. A face full of excess, big areas, big round nose, looked like he had too much to drink. Man had too much of everything. Bush looked like a little chimp, and uh, everybody liked to draw him that way. That really helped illuminate the idea. So it's all about the idea. What idea do you have about this person? And then how can you take these features to push your design? of this face toward making that point. From the internet, I see a ton of illustrators, caricaturists who are just having fun with faces. And I know some of these people personally, and I love them as individuals. They're wonderful people. But when I look at the pictures and I think, what's the point? What are you doing? It's not taking the challenge, really, of how to do this thing. So for me, the greatest caricaturist of the 20th century was David Levine. And if anybody wants to see that brilliant stuff, go to Google and type in David Levine. And he drew for about 50 years for the New York Review of Books, mostly, but also the New Yorker and a lot of other Esquire for a time. Did a lot for Esquire. I kind of like followed his path a little bit. I uh... Loved his, just on a personal note, his pen and ink drawings were one of the most inspiring things for me. Just the way he would emphasize areas with cross-hatching and just loosen up everything. He could just guide your view through the entire face and, and figure and just an utter master of drawing. He was a great master and very generous, too, with young artists. You could call him up and he would invite you over. Hirschfeld, too. I got to meet all my heroes. And Ed Sorrell is still with us. And he is a great master also, great storyteller with faces. Barry Blitt is this way, Victor Juhas this way, Joe Chardello. All the people today who are really great are allowing the story to pull the, the design. Okay, so illustration is a combination of narrative plus design. And that's what caricature 
should be, not always is. But, you know, people want to attack it as if it's a fun exercise, like a funhouse mirror. Go have fun. That's great. I have no real problem with it. So if it's interesting to you, if it's fascinating to you, if it makes you happy, respect that and dive into it. I think that's what we're looking for is, is passion for whatever it is that is interesting to you in, in your life. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for taking the time out of your day to sit and talk to me about these things. Thank you, Matt. I, I hope that it gives some people some courage. Don't look back. Don't have regrets. Just keep moving forward and, and you'll make it. <laughs>